And once again, we caution you. These stories are definitely not for the timid soul. So we tell you calmly and very sincerely, if you frighten easily, turn off your radio now. First, there was the invasion of the body snatchers. Then there was Alien. Now there is the deadly spawn. It began with a meteor crashing to Earth. No one knew the mystery of the mutant spores it contained. Now, they are free. They will grow and reproduce rapidly, eating anything and anyone in their path. The deadly spawn, the nightmare, is just beginning. Deadly Spawn wants you to see them at this theater soon. They need every person they can get. New from 21st Century Distribution. Rated R. Podcast. I'm Tom Carnell, and I'm Langley West, and we're here with episode 17 with uh, with a guest. One seventeen. One seventeen. I yeah. say seventeen. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do drugs, kids. Um, we're here with a, a special guest. Yeah. Today we have with us John Dodds. Uh, John Dodds is uh, uh, well, at least to a certain um, section of the population, uh, an effects legend. Um, I, John, I, I, I think like a lot of people. Uh, became aware of you because of your articles um, in Starlog and Cinemagic, and and uh, it was it was you, you were like a a fixture. It was like it was like we we saw you so much, and and you wrote so much and taught so much through those articles. It was like it was like we knew you. I have to say, I hear this all the time, and I'm completely flabbergasted by it because at the time, Don Dohler uh, published Cinemagic, and when I first wrote those articles you're referring to, I had no clue whatsoever anyone was even reading them, and that was true for years. Uh, there was just no Internet and no easy way to correspond to anybody, and I didn't get feedback. I'm getting it now, decades later, and it's very gratifying, uh, but I've had... A hundred people in the business tell me what you just said, and some of them are very well-known names, uh, which also flabbergasts me. Uh, but Dick Smith used to call me on the phone and ask for clarification on something I had written in Cinemagic, which it was a little stupefying. For, for one thing, that he was reading Cinemagic to begin with, because certainly he could have written something superior. And uh, second, that... Uh, I don't know how he got my phone number, so there was that, and uh, ju just that he's asking me for information, which is uh, mind-boggling. But it's very gratifying after all this time to, to realize that all that work, and it was hard work, had a lot of impact, Did and you... I'm still hearing it. I hear it every week on uh, Facebook. When you so... wrote for Fango, was that under Bob Martin or Tony? 
Bob. Bob wow, Martin. Wow, that's Bob old school. God. Tony who? Tim Pone? Oh, I know Tony, but yeah. uh, he, I guess, I guess for both of them then, but mostly Bob Martin, okay. and uh, he had a co-editor at one point, uh, Dave, was it, um, the Manly Handbook, I for, I'm forgetting his name, mm. but uh, there was a, a co-editor uh, at Fango uh, after, uh, concurrent with Bob Martin, and uh, so it was both. Okay, great, cool. Great people. Yeah, yeah, I wrote under Tony and then for, with Chris for, geez, 10 years, something like that. Yeah. Off and on, yeah. Um, and and our missing co-host Heather is uh, also writing currently writing for them. Well, not anymore. Fango is, seems to be going away, gone by the wayside. Line. Yeah, which is just oh, a- I've heard this before. We'll see. Well, their website <laughs> hasn't been updated since December, and uh, the present editor Ken Hanley was saying like, I don't work there anymore. I, I would be willing to bet that something will pop up because it's such it's as a brand it's so just as a brand purely as a brand right yeah and and if nothing else i bet we'll end up seeing uh, an an online magazine yeah yeah yeah. i think that's where whatever whatever happens with fango it was enormously durable as a magazine many magazines don't have nearly their life i uh, I think them maybe famous monsters you know under forey was 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 comparable uh rue morgue lately um but rue morgue has a has has like a like a like more of a fringe audience yeah it feels like a catalog to me where there's lots of little tiny bits about a lot of different stuff yeah so John, mm-hmm. this is uh, now. I, I I'm I'm familiar with your work, and we're and we're going to get into your work. But um, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask every, uh, not just effects artist, but uh, filmmaker um, that that we talk to. Um, when, oftentimes, when uh, I talk to filmmakers, particularly effects people. Um, there is a a seminal moment. There's something that happens. There's a movie that they see, or there's a, a an epiphany that they have. Did did you have that that kind of said, oh, I can make, I can do this. That this is a, a, a like. How did you even know or find out about effects work? My first experience with effects was uh, uh, through stop motion animation, and I grew up in the 50s, so uh, the big uh, striking influences were um, King Kong uh, mm. when they finally ran it on TV, which was uh, for, was the first time in the 50s, a much older movie, but that's what you saw in the 50s was 30s films and 40s films sometimes, the old universal uh, horror classics. And uh, King Kong was on a New York show called Million Dollar Movie, which was uh, uh, on every week, but every week they just showed one movie, and they showed it every night, and then twice on Saturday and twice on Sunday. And if if it was a film like King Kong, you watched it every day of the week and twice on Saturday and twice on Sunday. And then often they would repeat their more uh, popular films uh, later in the same year. So I got to see King Kong a lot. And uh, at that time, even though it was a 30s film, in the 50s, this was the best film ever made. And uh, to a lot of people who, uh, you know, are in my age group, uh, that that was it. There was nothing like it. And for decades, there was nothing like it. And it's still an exciting film uh, to many people. But how much of that is nostalgia mixed up with 
uh, other things. I'm not always sure. The same is true for Ray Harryhausen. And Seventh Voyage of Sinbad would be the other big influence, which came somewhat later. But I was 10 when I saw Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. That's when it opened. Uh, and that Cyclops on the beach was like nothing I had ever seen in my right? short life. But I'd seen what there was to see on TV anyway. And this was in color. This was in widescreen. You know, in the 50s, you're watching a small TV in soft focus. It's There is no color. It's always black and white and, uh, you know, interspersed with interruptions and commercials. And when you go to a movie theater and it's a color film, it's quite mind-blowing, anything. Uh, at a movie theater, the size of the image, the clarity of the image, the the fact that it's saturated with color, you know, in that that era that was heavy saturation, Technicolor was very much in mode. And so it was uh, just striking and uh, almost traumatic to see, have that kind of experience after watching uh, 30s films, uh, most of which weren't very good. Um, the horror films were the best things on. The universal horror films were the best things on, and the occasional King Kong or whatever it was. But mm-hmm. that was that was the second influence. Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, yeah. specifically the Cyclops on the beach, sure. and and everything. Uh, they put they put more into that film than most people's put into films today in terms of sequences that have enormous impact and effectiveness and are just thrilling, uh, and it's it's it, it's it's just talent and showmanship. It mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't much to do with how real the effects looked, which was you know something they're probably better at today, but without the same impact and effect that. Uh, people like Harryhausen, and there weren't many people like Harryhausen, but someone like Ray Harryhausen could uh, get across on a relatively low budget, just with ingenuity, imagination, uh, film craft, and uh, cinematic expertise. I I think that that's something that that people don't talk about enough whenever they talk about um, when when they talk about Harryhausen, is that he, you know, everybody talks about his the animation and they talk about the, the the design of the creatures and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. which is you know obvious but i don't think they think about how how good he was at as a quote-unquote filmmaker in in in, in presentation it's like you know uh, i still maintain that that cyclops entrance uh on the beach when he first comes out of the cave chasing sakura is one of the most cinematic moments Ever like mm. that, that that thing just like it, it literally my jaw hit the floor, you know. Yeah, I think it's hilarious that we yeah. have done 117 episodes and we always come back to Kong and we always come back <laughs> to Sinbad. Yeah, Simon's Voyage of Sinbad. We we no matter even we've done musicals, sir, and we end up back at Kong. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that that really is a testament. What, well, the I, music in the music in King Kong is exceptional. So there's, the there's dance that. numbers were great. Max Steiner. <laughs> um, uh, the question that I always want to know when I'm meeting someone is, uh, what kind of kid were you? Were you a monster kid before monster kids were monster kids, or were you, you know, were you a, a how old a man are you? If you don't mind me asking. 
I'm 69. Okay, so we're all we're all in that sort of same insurance demographic. <laughs> oh, stop! I could be your father. <laughs> no, I don't think so, sir. I'm I'm 57, so so we're we're okay. we're, we're there. All right. Um. So I'm just curious as to you know I spoke with Neil Gaiman at one point. He said you know unsurprisingly that he was always under a table reading. So I'm curious about you. Were you a tinker or were you a taking radios apart and putting them back together guy or? Um, yeah, there's something in the genetic structure, I, I have to believe, uh, because I was making, I had heard that uh, uh, Madame Tussauds' remarkable lifelike figures were made out of wax. So, I mean, I was, I, w- I don't know how old I was, eight. Uh, I, I, I went to my mom's uh, cupboard where she kept the holiday candles, and I took them to the basement, and I started dripping one drip at a time, making candle wax monsters. Uh, and I made a fairly credible uh, Frankenstein head. It looked like the monster. I mean, enough that my mother was not upset with the, the theft of her <laughs> holiday candles. She went to the store and bought me more candles. And that was the kind of great mother I had. That's awesome. And it was. And I, and I still think that sort of thing makes can make a big difference to a child. Uh, you know, I I hope everybody has a parent that encourages their strange pursuits and interests when they're young because uh, it means something important and uh, it shouldn't be discouraged. It should be. You it's know, that first fostered. validation, right? Yeah, it's the first time somebody kind of gives you permission. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're yeah. good at this. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Well, yes, it makes all the difference. Yeah. You know, you, you don't feel like you're doing something crazy or wrong. You, it, it was, my parents a, uh, both act, actively encouraged my strange interests, whatever they were. And uh, that was, I was more fortunate in that than I understood at the time. It just seemed like normal to me. But, mm-hmm. you know, if we wanted to do a spook house in the summers, which we did every summer, uh, with you know, in corridors of curtains with monsters jumping out periodically, my mother came up with the curtains and the old sheets and the, uh, you know, uh, shredded linen. Uh, I like mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm liking mom a lot. I like Mrs. Yeah, absolutely. And I always had a place to be creative in the in the basement. We didn't have a huge house, but it wasn't tiny, and there was always a room I could use where, to make where, candle wax monsters or uh, have a, ch- a chamber of horrors in the summer. We put on theatricals also uh, for years. Let's I, put on a show. Like we, yeah, exactly. I love that. Yeah. Yes, like the I don't. You're old enough to know the Little Rascals. Oh, sure, absolutely. I'm going back to Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Like, let's. I got a barn. My mom makes costumes. Let's put on a show. It's the same thing, except they were in an older age group. I, I, yeah. w- I grew up in the Little Rascals when I was the age they were, you know, mm. which is l- like less than ten. And I thought Spanky, uh, Spanky uh, McFarlane was the actor. I don't remember what his name was in the in the show. Just Spanky. Yeah. I thought he was a genius. I, I wanted to be him. I wanted to put on shows, uh, and I thought I would. I thought I would do that when I was an adult. I thought I'd be a director on Broadway because I put in a, a curtain that opened and closed with a string and built sets out of uh, cardboard boxes. And uh, the, the parents of the kid we had a lot of kids in our neighborhood, so they it was easy to get actors because you know, they had nothing to do in the summers. They came and they were in the show, and the parents came to see the show. I thought I had some real theatrical uh, ability. I didn't realize... Until many years later, that 
really the shows weren't that good. It was just that it was very charming to see children putting on a play. But I thought I was, uh, I really had some theatrical expertise. And uh, at some point I realized I had no talent at all to be a director. I mean, what what it takes to do that wasn't what I had, whatever Wait, just a whip in a chair, right? (laughs) Yeah. What? I'm curious then, were, was dad and mom the, the one your sort of access to cinema, or did that come later with the advent of TV? Because um, like my, my mom used to always bring us to the movies. We would go to the drive, load up the car with the drive-in, and that's how I saw really inappropriate things like Sons of Katie Elder no, and Hush Hush Blue Charlotte. Uh, but go ahead. I, th- I, th- I think what it was, was I was a very in- extremely introverted child. I'd, uh, I, I'd say borderline autistic, except I'm not. But I, do- I don't really know what I'm talking about in that area, so mm. I may be describing it incorrectly. But I was severely shy. and I un- But I understood enough when I saw King Kong. I understood what it was. It was miniature sets. I knew it wasn't real. I knew it was a figure that was animated. My my father knew that much and could explain that to me. And uh, I understood that it was possible alone, by yourself, to create your own world if you didn't like the world the way it was, and I didn't, because uh, didn't, I didn't seem to fit into it, that it was possible, I learned it was possible to create your own world out of plaster and styrofoam and wax and rubber and control everything. I, I and find that a I, common. That, I find that a common theme: the the the, the artist controlling his environment. Yeah. Um, well, I it, and it was a, yeah. It must be. It was just occurring to me as you said that that uh, I've pretty much spent my entire life trying to do that. It's like always feeling. Um, out of place, never, never quite fitting in with it. Like right. if you, if, even if I found a group yeah. that I kind of, kind of could be with, I always felt like a tourist, mm. you know, like, yeah. like I, I wasn't yeah. really. So, Observer. so I'm, right. I'm with you there, John. I think, uh, I think that that's. Well, it's like I say, I'm not autistic. I'm autastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you do the same thing, Tom. You create worlds uh, with words. You yeah. write, you know. Uh, and it's it's. I, I wrote a Facebook page uh, post last night about how the initial creation process. It is being God. You you decide what color the sky is yeah. and what color the plant is and and how this is going to look. At some point, you get tired of all those assholes kicking the shit out of you, and you're going to take over the world. <laughs> and that's what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay. There you go. We figured it all out. I, I, I think we have. I think so. See, this. Why well, it 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 it'd be. It's, I'm not the first person uh, that has had the realization that the the, the appeal of monsters, in part, is is that they are. Uh, they're different. They right. don't fit in. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're not treated. People don't see who they are. They they have. Uh, Monsters have a grotesque exterior, and it's not on. I, I'm aware it's common that people don't like the way they look, you know, whether that makes sense or doesn't, that they feel they don't fit in, that people are reacting to something on the surface, not something that is really reflects who they actually are. I, I think that's part of the appeal of monsters because, you know, the, fra- the famous monsters, of, I mean, famously Frankenstein and King Kong are like abused for all the, for, 
for unjustly for uh, the, their victims and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and tr- treated badly for uh, bad reasons. Well, Bar- Clyde Barker talks about how in, in like in his stories, the, it's the people that are the monsters. The, it's the monsters that are the sort of normalcy and the and the idea of the outsider, which he sort of related to, and it was the norm, quote unquote normal people infringing upon that that sure. uh, created the drama. And I tend, I kind of embrace yeah. that more than let's say the king scenario where normalcy is then um, intruded, in, upon intruded upon by by, by the monsters. Right. So yeah, I absolutely agree with you, sir. Mm-hmm. So so. So you're inspired by um, movies, as so many of us are, and you start kind of just making things on your own, not even really knowing necessarily what you're doing, but you're you're, right. you're making yeah. them. And, and at what point does does John Dodds become a quote unquote serious student? How does that happen, and in, in what form? Uh, years before I owned a movie camera, I knew I wanted to do stop motion films. I mean, it took me that long. I had no money, and finally, uh, I got one for a Christmas present, eight millimeter, and um, I started shooting with that. But I, I was planning this years in advance. I started to draw, I, I, King Kong being my principal uh, inspiration, because it was um, it was different from Harryhausen in that it felt like it was really a world apart in a, a, a almost a claustrophobic setting really cut off from the world as it really was or as I real, as I thought at least uh so I, it had some special appeal for me uh king kong i wanted to do my own king kong but not not copy it but come up with my own characters um i always i always seemed to need to invent everything i didn't make a gorilla i made a a, a character i called grog that was uh original but um like king kong but not king kong but he lived you know alone in the forest <laughs> i love grog man. he's awesome you can see him on youtube yeah you <laughs> can there's footage there I, you know and uh, you probably hear this from all those people that tell you um you know what an impact you made on them but man that uh, grog mm-hmm. for at this point now, for, prior to you releasing those those clips on YouTube, mm-hmm. um, Grog was like mythic to me. Mm-hmm. You know, he was this 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 mythic, epic thing that I so desperately wanted to see, and uh-huh. and couldn't because no YouTube. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. No there was no it. YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so. Thank you, sir, for uh, for that. And and uh, uh, Forest Story is is beautiful. It's amazing. I, I I can't imagine the amount of work that went into it. Um, thanks, uh, thanks for telling me that. Um, yeah, it's very gratifying to get to hear comments like that. I, I read about this 30 years ago. <laughs> I, I always wanted to see it, and it, it's, it wasn't disappointing uh, when I did see it, and that's 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 good to hear. Um, yes, it's so strange uh, how, how different it is today. Shots that were uh, indescribably hard to do today would be easy because the technology has changed. And um, if it has any impact or effect left, uh, it's amazing because uh, 
what was so difficult then is, uh, I don't want to say easy, it's never easy to do, you know, good filmmaking. And we need all the help we can get, uh, we filmmakers. So God bless every computer and every uh, advance in technology that amplifies uh, the, our productivity and uh, the, the time we have to do these things. Uh, it's all it's all good. And uh, but uh, um, yeah, it used to be uh, the reason so so few people did it in the uh, 60s, 70s, you know, amateurs uh, uh, or anybody. You know, because uh, it didn't used to be, you, if you wanted to see stop motion or anything like it, you had to wait years in between Ray Harryhausen's films because nobody else was doing it except for an occasional Christmas special when Rankin-Bass started doing those. Mm-hmm. But it was very, very few people did it. And um, it was, I don't know, part of it was just because it was very hard and most people didn't want to to do something that was that hard or didn't find it rewarding or whatever reason. Today, it's like uh, you, you can see more new animation in a day than you could in, in a decade uh, that uh, of my early life. That's true. Uh, be, because everybody's, not everybody's doing it, but it's, uh, you know, there are multiple websites just on Facebook and with people posting their latest footage. <laughs> There's a lot of people doing stop motion. The stuff like Leica puts out, they're really good about putting out, like, look at what we're doing. And yeah, they do cool. They do a lot of promotion. Well, they're like the gold standard, uh, certainly technically, the gold standard of yeah. uh, stop motion today. Uh, although there's a lot of good work being done. There's a huge amount of uh, work being done uh, in stop motion professionally and people that either want to be professionals or just, you know, dedicated amateurs. Sometimes that's where the best work you see is, in the dedicated amateurs or film students. But uh, it's uh, the, the, the advance in technology has made it, uh, not easy to do because it's never easy to make a film. It still comes it's, down to moving the puppet one frame at a time. Um, yeah, unless they <laughs> unless they come up with something I haven't right, heard of, but yeah, I think exactly. that I think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Was Alien Factor your first film? Um, my my that you worked, uh, that you worked on. It wasn't my per- first professional film because I didn't get paid anything. Um, I had done. <laughs> uh, I had. To, <laughs> I it may have been a common story in the on so Dollar Universe. It's so <laughs> Even today, when here's the. <laughs> so little things change. There's, there's so much no changes and checks coming in from Alien Factor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um, uh, I was my involvement on Alien Factor was peripheral. Although I had known Don Bowler, the director of Alien Factor and uh, the publisher of Cinemagic magazine. Uh, and an extraordinarily successful uh, do-it-yourself micro-budget filmmaker who's been an inspiration to many people, uh, who has dem- demonstrated again and again and ten times that I know of, uh, meaning he's made ten feature films that had some form of distribution, some of them in many countries all over the world. He's proved again and again and again that uh, you can do it for a few thousand dollars, or if not that, then a very extraordinarily low budget, and get some kind of distribution. Um, normally, in his case, it was direct-to-video, but you can make money on direct-to-video. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so, I, um, I often 
tell um, young filmmakers, uh, you know, when they're when they're talking to us at the film festival we do or any or anything, I I tell them you need you need to check out. Um, you need to check out a documentary called um, Blood, Boobs, and Beef, yeah. I think is the name mm -hmm. of it. Um, and you need yeah. to check out this guy, Don Doler, because here's a guy that was just just a regular guy, you know, had a house, you know, and he did everything that you need to do uh, when it comes to filmmaking, and that means getting it distributed, you know, well, selling it, first of all, getting it distributed, um, uh, all, all those things, it's entirely possible. You don't have to work for the Hollywood industry to... Especially uh, now. Yeah, especially now. Yeah, it's easier now uh, mm -hmm. to get your film out there. I, I can only imagine at that time, Don probably, I mean, faced a lot of obstacles. I mean, you don't have the internet. You don't have all these outlets to show your work. But at the same time, Time yeah. too, you 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 don't have to share all that space either. Where now, uh, you know, everybody with a camera is a filmmaker. Yes, although there was a time in the uh, in the seventies and eighties, especially the eighties, where uh, there there did start to be a lot of people mm -hmm. uh, making these micro budgets, and there was kind of like a a, a glut on the market. Um, uh, however, I mean, when Don started, it was very hard to make a film because this was pre-digital when Don started in the 70s, uh, Alien Factor. I don't remember the year, but it was in the 70s. 78. And, uh, 78. Yeah. He shot it on 16-millimeter film. I mean, that all has to be cut, you know, physical mm -hmm. cuts in the film on the negative. He cut the negative himself uh, or with people in his house. Uh, physical cuts in the film, gluing it together with cement and, you know, taking that to the lab. Very expensive. Mm -hmm. Very expensive to shoot three minutes of film on uh, 16 millimeter if you don't have much money. You know, it's uh, the pro between the cost of the film and the processing, it's... Uh, uh, it eats up a lot of money if your your budget's a few thousand dollars or not much more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but Don had contacts because he'd done Cinemagic for years and he knew a lot of people. So I think that's what made his films possible. He knew who to ask to do different things, uh, both locally and not so locally. I wasn't so local. He was in Baltimore. I was in New Jersey. So uh, when I uh, when I did do my first professional job, which was his next film, Night Beast, um, uh, or technically it may be the third to be released, but it was his uh, uh, the second film. Yeah, that's why I showed Night Beast. Started. Night Beast is next on your filmography. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so when he did that, and I was paid. Uh, that was my first professional film, and that I, I did receive some money. Um, so I had to go there on weekends uh, when they were shooting uh, for a while. Well, see, just even uh, even that, just like what you just said, I had to go there on weekends. So this is a, a, a feature film that is being shot on weekends. It's not mm -hmm. on a schedule other than, like, when are you not working? Okay, well, let's get together and, and do this. Yes, he used uh, a lot of the people he was working with had regular jobs, meaning nine to five sort of jobs, so they couldn't do it during the week very often. So it was large, a film largely done on weekends. We we that continued. I don't know how long it continued. I, I wasn't connected with uh, Don after Night Beast or not much. 
anyway. So I don't know if uh, his uh, methods changed over the years. Certainly, he eventually went digital. But at the time, uh, the, I guess the point I was trying to make, not only did he do something that uh, few were able to do, but he did it at a time when it was very hard to make a film because it was all physical, um, you know, the, uh, physical film running through a camera, you know, yanked through at 24 frames a second. I'm, it's always amazing the film comes out usable after this, this torturous route it has to take to go through the camera. And it's so different from now where you like, I remember reading in Rebel Without a Crew, Robert Rodriguez editing his film mm. on... What a great book that is. It's it is a great, a great book. It's a great book. Editing via VCR, you know, and now you jump from there to today where like Park Chan-wook shot an entire film on his iPhone. I just saw on the internet mm-hmm. a guy shot an entire feature using the backup camera on his BMW. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's all there. I mean, it's a wow. little wonky and right, whatever, right. but um, it just shows the ingenuity and, and what people have available to them. Well, yeah, there's really no excuse now. Like at one time, I like if I was, I'm 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 trying to you know my my first exposure to any of this stuff was my parents' uh, eight millimeter camera, mm-hmm. and I was trying to do stop motion. But the the camera didn't come with a mechanism that would allow you to click off one frame at a time, so you would you'd run, you know, you'd get a few frames. Mm -hmm. And I'm animating, you know, like a stick moving across the ground, you know. But um, you know, but I'm of the age where when a lot of people were doing that stuff um, in the late 60s and, and, and well in the 60s and 70s you know I was I, I was born too late kind of to, to really uh, be considered a monster kid mm. and uh, so that it, 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 there was no my parents weren't going to send that film off and get it developed or anything like that so I have no idea how it turned out <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a creative process at what point John, did you um, take the Dick Smith uh, makeup course? I was nearly forty, which is much, which is very late to get started. <laughs> so you were already be a, when you when you took the course, you were you you already knew how to do a lot of this stuff. I'd done everything. I'd always thought I should learn how to do prosthetic makeup because I loved that stuff. But I was so into the world of stop motion and I was busy doing other related things, which I found very satisfying, um, I, uh, including a, a very elaborate project, The Deadly Spawn. And I, had, I, I didn't know how to do prosthetics. We had to get a, a Arnold Gargillo of, uh, from New York to do it because I, I didn't know how to do prosthetics and I had my hands full anyway. But... Um, I, I I don't know why I didn't learn sooner, but I was busy doing other things, especially the stop motion, which I thought was going to be what I did with my life. And I I never really stopped thinking that, but it sort of became a plan B at some point. But anyway, then that was big in my life, and I loved doing that. And I, nevertheless, when I got to be, near, I was nearly 40 when I thought this this is the time. I mean, why I can do this now. I have enough time to do it, and I have a little money, so I can. Because it was, it still is, I guess. Whatever version of it still exists. I think Andy Clement uh, does it now. Uh, the Dick Smith course. Um, right. It, right. it wasn't cheap. I mean, it was. I don't know, fifteen hundred dollars. I can't yeah. remember exactly. Um, 
but I had the money, so I did it, and I I I, I loved doing that. I I, I it was I was kind of like a little frustrated. I I had put that to one side. I really wanted to do prosthetic makeup, and immediately, um, I mean, I really took to it. I was very into it, and I, I was devoting all my time to doing the best work I could do, doing prosthetic makeups. And Dick was impressed with what I did. He was at that time just starting to act as special makeup consultant on a Laurel production uh, TV series called Monsters. This was 1980, late 80s, 89 maybe, mm-hmm. 89-ish. I got, uh, I got IMDb, IMDb listed as 1990. It well, started before. Uh, okay. Then, that's when it's, yeah. okay. I was close anyway. Whichever is correct, I, it was around then. Yeah, late 80s. For sure. Early 90s, sure, sure. Um, they did three seasons. Uh, and uh, so they hired him uh, really because they didn't know who to hire. Half the shows were being done in Los Angeles. Half the shows were being done on the East Coast in a small studio in Queens. And why they did it that way, I'm not really sure, uh, but that, that's the way they wanted to do it. So, I wanted, I wanted uh, to ask you about that because, you know, I'm, I'm used to most um, productions – um, being produced in LA, and uh, and it and, and it occurred to me as we were getting ready for the show, you never made the move to to LA to Hollywood to to uh, test the waters out there or whatever, or did you? That, no, no, I did. I went as far as getting a um, a map of LA and studying it because <laughs> I thought that <laughs> this may be the time. I I haven't worked in six months. Maybe now's the time. Uh, and in the 80s, I mean, I probably would have had some success if I had done it then, because uh, there wasn't that there weren't that many people that did it then. Uh, you know, the the avalanche of expertise, very good makeup artists, uh, uh, many of them, very good uh, uh, people, uh, came later, and there was very you know there wasn't that much competition. So I probably would have done all right if I had moved but my family was here and I wasn't that thrilled about moving away from my family and uh, I didn't really need to it was always close to really needing to do something for work because as so many filmmakers know the employment opportunities can be uh, uneven or few and far between or unpredictable employment is unpredictable in show business in general really um Anyway, I, it was always like I get the map of LA, study it, and then something would come up, and I wouldn't have to do it. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't really want to do it. Some people really want to, and they don't. They don't need to be as in as desperate a state as I, I felt like I needed to be to make that move. Um, but uh, I don't know. Things kept coming along. If I could, if I could hold out another few months, something always would turn up. I always, I always convinced myself, right or wrong that if I just I needed to keep improving my work if if it was good enough something would happen that would make something happen I just had to be good enough and if nothing was happening I had to make my work better work on my portfolio that was always for many years that was my big thing um but after um and work was uneven until um really until I took the Dick Smith course I had no intention of becoming a prosthetic makeup artist. I just wanted to learn how to do that. So if I had a job that required it, I could do that, and I enjoyed it. That was a reason enough for me to do it. 
and uh, just having any interaction with Dick Smith I thought was enormously cool. So um, I liked that aspect of it. He didn't live that far from me. I could actually go to his house occasionally and visit with him. He was in Larchmont, New York at that time, which wasn't uh, that far from New Jersey where That's I lived. Awesome. <laughs> um, uh, you, and, and anyway, so my, he, he got hired to do Monsters, and he, he said, get John Dodds to do this episode. He'd be good for that. And that was Holly's house. It was a, just a polyurethane mask, doll mask, and uh, they were very happy with it. I, I was always on time. I never asked for more money. Uh, I was very reliable. And they kept asking me to do more episodes, and I ended up doing 18 episodes over the uh, three-year course. I've n- I never stopped working after that, not one day in like the next 25 years. Uh, I just never stopped working. And awesome. It was all makeup, makeup-related, uh, more than stop motion, which always was my plan B. That was right. always what I was going to do when the makeup jobs dried up, but they just never did. And uh, the steady employment was so wonderful after years of uh, spotty employment that it was it was not something I was going to give up. Right. I couldn't say, you can't say no to a job. Some, you go for years and, and you don't know where your next meal sometimes is coming from. It's very becomes very hard to say no to a, a, a job offer. So I just kept saying yes, and I loved it. So that was another reason to say yes. Mm-hmm. You sort of peripherally touched on Deadly Spawn. I, I want to sort of talk about that a little bit. Uh, what a great monster. Dude, what uh, a great monster. Uh, thanks. When... when you know, we've done uh, we've done episodes about creature design before, and mm-hmm. uh, I think that the Deadly Spawn is one of the coolest creatures, one of the best creature designs ever, because it's essentially just a mouth. It's well, it's this yeah. giant it's this giant mouth with this gaping maw mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. these rows of teeth. Yeah, I just saw echoes of it in Aud- uh, Audrey Two, in Little House. Sure. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, but, uh, but the thing is, is like I'm a big I spend time so much time on functionality. Like, is this even possible? Can mm-hmm. this even work? Right. And um, man, some of the some of the attack scenes in that are just there's a there's a I don't want to say meanness to it, but I, I, there's a dark current that runs <laughs> through you, sir. <laughs> that, but, <laughs> the old lady on the ground with that thing on her face is just like, holy mackerel. <laughs> and I love that. I love being in the hands of directors where I don't feel entirely safe. And and that mm-hmm. movie, you know, for for all its its uh, its uh, limitations, totally mm-hmm. works. Fires on all cylinders. Here's here's what's. What I think this is, is telling kind of blow smoke up John's ass. Well, this is well. I, I think that I think that this is more telling about me than it is the film. But that uh, I love the Deadly Spawn, and I can't tell you who directed it, but I know fucking John Dodds worked on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. funny, right? Yeah. Um, well, I had an advantage, obviously. I had the flashy stuff. Um, I, 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 we were trying to follow the Don Doler. Uh, blood, boobs, and beast mm-hmm. uh, formula. Uh, but the actress refused to disrupt, but the producer <laughs> tried very hard <laughs> to get her to do one scene where the, where the deadly spawn rips her blouse, and she just declined to do it. So that was that. But nevertheless, <laughs> deadly spawn has done all right over the years. It's, it's way beyond 30 video, re- three zero 
video releases at this point. Wow. And the yeah. third third Blu-ray is in the works at Synapse Films. Wow. Uh, the, the success of it is uh, whatever it's got. I, I'm not always sure, but it's got something <laughs> because it won't go away. And uh, the reviews, which when it was new, were this is not a very good film. Today are this is a really good film, <laughs> four, four or five stars out yeah. of five. You know, it's... I, I don't know what happened. Well, I do know what happened in the intervening years since we made it. It's um, there's a new genre that has been recognized. It's the very low budget, micro budget, do it yourself in the garage with minimal means type of film, and it's a genre. And Deadly Spawn is often referred to as possibly the best of that genre. Yeah, it's that it's, whole VHS horror phase. Thing that people, so many people are gravitating to now. Right. You know, it's all the best drawing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, when I look at it, when I look at it from from an effects artist's point of view, you know, I'm I'm trying to think. Okay, I have very little money, and I have to make this. Thing. You made hundreds mm-hmm. of teeth <laughs> that thing, um, and I. I this is what mm-hmm. this is one of the things that I take away from it is your solution for the young spawn swimming through the water with mm-hmm. the, with the ply with the plywood with the squiggly yeah. line cut through it. Mm-hmm. I, I I just I lack that ability. I lack that ability of um, of being able to come up with a solution for things sometimes, and so I look to your example and i'm like wow this is like how did you even think of that uh the i i never looked for that solution it it was partly accidental Uh, it was intended to be a stop motion shot Uh, i had done that particular uh gag in stop motion with a snake um made to smoothly undulate and slither forward by means of a flexible plastic strip that comes out of the unseen base of the model, which is anchored in a wavy line in the plywood hidden with lighting. Um, So when you pull it, uh, or in the case of a stop-motion shot, when you move it, uh, uh, you know, an eighth of an inch, a quarter of an inch, whatever it is per frame, um, it it moves in a very smooth way, a very hard kind of movement to get in stop motion if you don't have some kind of this kind of mechanical um, assistance. Uh, And so I was setting it up. I was building the stop motion rig to shoot the spawns in. We were going to shoot it in stop motion. And um, I I don't know when it hit me, but it was, I remember it was like, let's just wait a minute, attach a string and pull it and see what that looks like. And all of a sudden, it was clear there was no reason to shoot it in stop motion. It, was, it could be a live-action shot. And, but we still see the track, so put it in water. Make it really muddy so you can't see the track that the spawns are anchored into. You have to hide the uh, repeating S-shape in the plywood or uh, multiple uh, S-shapes because there were uh, three or four spawns in a shot. Um, to hide that, we, 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 we built little swimming, plywood swimming pools, like six feet long and four feet wide. 
and sunk the plywood, which had the S repeating S shape, the full length of the plywood swimming pool. And you, we just pulled it with a, a string. And I don't know, it just at some point it was clear there's no reason to do this as stop motion. Not only doesn't it have to be stop motion, it's going to look better as a live action shot because it's completely real. It's what we want it to look like. We don't really... You know, it's not the kind of film where you have real any uh, allowance for uh, a synthetic appearance. It's a horror film. You know, Harryhausen uh, is so entertaining and dynamic. It, it does, but it, it doesn't rely on how real the monster moves or looks. But in a horror film, you're not scared if you don't think it's a real thing. So it was important that it look real. Um, and the same, the same was true for the real monsters. I mean, I tried eyes on that thing. I must have tried ten kinds of eyes. Every every time I put eyes on this eyeless creature, it looked like I don't know something in a Disney film, The Little Mermaid. It looked like The Little Mermaid. <laughs> I just imagine Google eyes, googly eyes, <laughs> jiggle eyes. <laughs> that's so well, that's my solution to a producer if they have a very low budget. I said, well, we could spend this, and it'll cost this much money. Or if you really have very little money, I can do a sock with jiggle eyes on it. Is that what you want? And they would laugh and say, no, we'll do the other thing. I, I heard you mention Dawn May and Synapse. Do you know what yeah. – are, are they going through the film and cleaning it up like they usually do? And will there be a bunch of extras or do you not know? I'm not, I haven't been talking to Don, so I don't know what they're doing exactly, um, or if they're. I, th- I don't know if they're going to the original uh, film elements, or they had uh, done a very good transfer for their DVD release of Spawn. It is, in fact, the best uh, DVD release uh, mm-hmm. of of the dozens that have come out. The, the, the Synapse DVD is the best. It's better than the Blu-rays that have come out. But I'm sure their Blu-ray will be the best release. But it's a 16-millimeter film, some of which was rather grainy. We were push-processing right. uh, certain scenes. It was never like a, a, it's, this is not Lawrence of Arabia. This is the deadly spawn, 16-millimeter. Some of the stock was old, but we got a good price. But it was old. <laughs> it may have probably expired. It didn't look – anyway. They, Synapse really cleaned it up as well as I, I, I it looked as good as I'd ever seen it this is I'm talking about the DVD yeah. I'm sure the Blu-ray will be wonderful Don, but it's, there's only so much to be done with it Don's the man there's there's just no <laughs> way about it everything that guy touches even even really questionable things like they did a big thing on um, not prom night something like that and, and mm-hmm. gave it much more respect than it probably deserves the Synapse films, I cannot wait for Suspiria. It's one oh, of my favorites. Oh, favorite. dude. I know. That's going to be... What do you... Do you have any up. thoughts on the on this redo they're doing? A redo of... Suspiria? Somebody's no, I know nothing about it. it. My feeling about remakes is that, you know, don't get, don't get so upset. <laughs> you know, the original is not going anywhere. Yeah. They aren't destroying, they aren't burning the original and replacing it with some new remake. So if it's, maybe they'll bring something new to the table, which is good. Sometimes remakes are good. It, it if they me, aren't good, you always have the original. Right, it reminds me of King, Stephen King. They asked him about, are, do you ever get upset that so many bad films, you know, might uh, made from your books might harm your books? And his response was, he pointed to a bookshelf. He goes, no, my books are right there, and they're untouched, and no one's going to mess yeah. with those. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, 
I agree. It's it's like a cover band, right? A, a band doing a song that you're maybe familiar with, but they put their own spin on it. I'm okay with that. Right. Yeah. Same thing. I can't believe I just said I, that I was okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so many times I'm like, I just don't understand why. Like, like. Why do we need a remake? Uh, oh, I can ex- I can tell you. Right, no. go ahead. The films that get made are the films that get financed. Mm, sure. Sometimes the people that make the films that get financed don't understand how they got the money for this piece of shit, but they're going to take the paycheck to the bank and sure. smile. Right, sure. right, 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 right. Yeah. You know, who you know, it's not because there's a good reason for it. It's because somehow some star is available or the commercial elements, the blood boobs and beast or, or everything, whatever they need are there, so they say, Okay, they green light it. It's not because it's not usually because they think it's the best idea well, in think, the world. I think there's this conceit among fans where they think like people that work in films sit there and again amidst a sea of projects and go out of all of these this one's the best and <laughs> and usually it is what's Michael Caine talked about it any given time he picks the be- from the best script on his desk mm-hmm. if everything on his desk is shit he's going to pick the best of the shit and that's mm-hmm. that's one thing but the idea that fans think like no, no, no! You're, you're, you're. What, what's the word? You're raping my childhood. Right, oh, right, right. Stop. Yeah, yeah. Stop. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to what's going to make us money. Yeah, it's a yeah. business. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, I mean, the studios are businesses. They're they're trying to make money. Uh, it did used to be true more than it seems to be today in the 40s. Uh, the studios would often allow a director to do a, a vanity project or a personal project for a, a modest budget that they wouldn't really – uh, expect to add to their bottom line just because they're you know a valued director and uh, I think that I thought that's what would happen that's what happened with Tim Burton with uh, Ed Wood I thought he got to make mm-hmm. Ed Wood because uh, he was a valuable director and they wanted him to do a low they wanted to allow him to be happy by making a low budget project I guess it still happens but it used to be more common mm-hmm. right well they just did it I know with Robert Downey Jr. right when you're Iron Man you get to make the judge Right. You know, and regardless of the box office it does, mm-hmm. at least RDJ yeah. is happy and yeah. is willing to sign yeah. on for the 30th Avengers film. Sure. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, it still happens sometimes. You know, John, that's good like that. John, are you still a fan of movies? Do you go to the movies? Do you... Tom and I have run into this thing where we're like, we have a... We realize we have a certain amount of time left on the planet, so, <laughs> yeah. so we were very judicious in what we um, watch. Uh, do you go to the movies? Yeah, but it's it's harder and harder to get me out of the house because you know modern uh, entertainment tech, uh, 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 rooms with you know I got a pretty decent sized screen and the sound system's good and. Blu-rays look amazing when they're yeah, good Blu-rays, right. which is common. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I have a thousand, I have a thousand Blu-rays, so you know, I don't watch, uh, I don't go out to the theater that often. I like <clears throat> some films in IMAX. That there is a difference. Uh, I mean, it's more like going to the movies used to be. It's you know, really big picture, and the sound is amazing. You can feel. 
can feel it in my chest. And uh, yeah, and with certain films, that's really a good way to see it. But you know, I don't go out as much as I used to. I tend to wait for it to come out on Blu-ray, and then I watch the films I want to see. As 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 you're, I think similar to what you were expressing. As I get older, as I approach seventy, I it's more re- and I've lost so many people I knew who were younger than me. They're gone. Mm-hmm. So what, how am I spending this day and how am I spending my time? And right. uh, I don't really, you know, there's only, there used to be 36 pictures on the roll of film and there's only five left. I better be careful what I take a picture of. You know, what am I going to do with these resources as they're dwindling? So I, I'm just more, I guard my time a little more uh, preciously. I it's this very reason why I tend I I rant a lot on the show about TV about how I just don't have the time to dedicate 24 hours to your series 24 you know I just, I just can't do it and uh, oh my god and I start to ask myself about you know maybe you need an editor um, yeah 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 uh, but I I absolutely I I hear you I hear you mm-hmm. plus at home you know you you can. Here we are back here. You, you can, can control your environment. You can control it. You yeah, are yeah. God. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I well, yeah, I Go ahead. Yes. All, everything you said. Yeah. Yes. I we're one you we are we're in agreement there. <laughs> I'm I'm curious on your uh IMDb it lists that you did work on Death Becomes Her. Was was I went to Dick's I went to Dick Smith's house one day when he was casting. The story was he was going to have Kevin Klein, Meryl Streep, and Goldie Hawn, and we had to cast all their heads. And that that story can change during the week. By the time I got there, uh, Kevin Klein was replaced with Bruce Willis, who was not there that day. Um, Meryl Streep uh, couldn't come that day, and uh, but Goldie Hawn was there, so we cast Goldie Hawn's face twice. And uh, and her hands for Death Becomes Her, mm-hmm. uh, a film for which Dick Smith was the special makeup consultant. The most of the work was, uh, you know, molding, casting. The, the actual work was done by other people, which I presume. ADI, right? Amalgamated Dynamics. Woodruff yeah, there. Services. Although Ke- I don't, Kevin Haney was uh, there that day. He was sort of in charge of the head casting at mm-hmm. least session. I don't. Uh, I don't. Mm, I'm not aware if he had any. Other involvement on the film. You know, I think you're right. ADI. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I look over your your filmography, you you it takes on the um, the sort of patina of a hired gun. Like you're brought in when when mm. some some very specific stuff needs to get done, and your expertise is the the most in the room. Well, I've always been East Coast, so, you know, uh, if they're shooting in the West Coast, but the actor's on the East Coast and they need a head cast, sometimes they would call me. Mm-hmm. So I would do head cast for people. Uh, I was supposed to do a head cast for, uh, well, I did do it, you know, Alien 3 or 4 or whatever number it was, I don't know. Gary Gary Dordan, what, what, what one would that uh, be? Resurrection, Alien 4. So he cast his head because he was here, uh, but uh, so it was a California project. But you know, some as I, sometimes they're in shows and on Broadway, and uh, for for whatever reason, maybe they live on the East Coast, and so rather than fly them to California, they get somebody who uh, knows how to do a head cast to do it. So sometimes it's as, as small a job as that. I was supposed to do Sigourney Weaver full body cast for so they could have a form to build her costume. For I think it was the same. Was she in Alien Three? I yeah. think that was an yeah. Alien movie yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I talked them out of it. I mean, not that it wouldn't have been very cool to work with Sigourney Weaver. However, 
um, I told them, you know, if you send, this will cost thousands of dollars, if you just send the costume people um, uh, uh, from California to where she is. She was in a show in Manhattan, Sigourney Weaver. If you send them, you know, two or three times, however many times it takes, you will save money. That, that's, that, what, that makes more sense. Just de- uh, measure her in person, do the fitting on her, not on a form, and not, not, not on an expensive form. So they did that. But, I, uh, you know, sometimes I get calls like that. Uh, when it's or the Ghostbusters three, they were doing a sequence. They shot it principally. Uh, I don't know where they shot it principally, but they were shooting something in the subways in New York, and they didn't have enough severed heads. So they called me and said, "Can you give us like ten severed heads? <laughs> you, Can you do it in three days?" <laughs> Absolutely. Did you do a life a full body cast on Grace Jones for Boomerang? It, it wasn't full body. It was like to the waist. Um, that's got to be just wild. <laughs> it was, it, it was, she was very quiet. It wasn't wild at all. Oh, it was just a cat. She was, she was very professional. Just, she wasn't, you just ruined Tom's. No, I like, it. I like to think that all around Grace Jones is just pandemonium. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, uh, you 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 understand sometimes the persona an actor projects sure. uh, uh, for themselves is not who they really are or not who you see off screen. Uh, I've seen I've been around actors enough to know that sometimes what's in front of the camera is nothing like what's off the camera. It's but they really are actors. Right. They really are creating this energy and uh, light life force in this character that isn't necessarily who they are. And they have to save their energy uh, sometimes. It's just they can't be on all the time. Sure. Mel Brooks I worked with on a show. He's not Mel Brooks when he's not in front of a camera. Right, right, he's a right. grouchy old guy. He drinks yeah. sitting there drinking coffee and being irascible. It's not – it's their actors. You know? Sure. It's not – it's sometimes very interesting and it's very ed- educational to see. Um, w- you understand better what performing artists do uh, uh, when you see that sort of thing. It's, it's, uh, they, they hold their energy and they, they're saving it for you know, when they need it the most, the energy and the uh, persona and the, the acting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's draining. You can't do it 24-7. No. John, so it was, Grace Jones was, was very nice but boring. <laughs> <laughs> John, I wanted to ask you uh, or, or, or comment on that uh, early on you, you, you thought you were going to be a, um, a stage person. Yeah. And you wound up actually later in your career um, working on the live stage version of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah? I sure did. That was quite a... Uh... That was uh, that was very wonderful for me because I grew up as a child thinking I was going to be in theater, and I realized that I didn't have the kind of personality personality that it took to be a director in a show on Broadway or, or anywhere. In the way you inter- had to interact with people and the collaboration that goes on, that I'm more like a solitary artist, and that's what makes me happy. I would, I couldn't be happy doing that kind of work. But I love theater. I always loved theater, but it, there didn't seem to be a place in um, my life, professional life, for theater. 
So it was very ironic and satisfying that it turned out that not only did I get a call after years of working in, in films and television, not only did I get a call for a theater job, it was the biggest show ever produced on Broadway at that time, at least, Beauty and the Beast. Walt Disney was doing their first Broadway show, and they were not pinching pennies. They were going to do whatever it took to be successful, and they didn't really know how to do it, but they figured it couldn't hurt to spend a lot of money. So there was there was that, and it was a lot of fun to work on a project after years of very low-budget projects, mostly, with producers saying, no, what can you do it cheaper? Can we cut this? Can we do less of that? We, we can't afford that. Can you, can you, can you do it for free? Um, to have, uh, to go from that to, uh, the biggest show ever produced on Broadway. And the, all they cared about was making it right and doing it over four or five times. That's what it took to get it right. And, uh, it was like, how much money do you, do you need? Uh, okay. I'll put in the request. There was never a problem with money. They never, there was never a problem getting paid. There was never a problem in, can I fix this to make it better? Um, the, the, they were so, it was a combination of having the money and for a big corporation, 14 million for a show, which was the, at least that was the official, uh, story as to what it cost. The real story is it cost a lot more than that, but $14 million for a big corporation like Disney is nothing. I mean, literally, it's not, it wouldn't, they wouldn't notice it if somebody pocketed $14 million. <laughs> they have so much money. So it was, it was, it was very nice that that wasn't an issue and that they, uh, the costume designer told me she was working on her 80th design for, for Lumiere. 80, wow. 80, wow. 80th, 80th version. They just, it was a combination of they weren't sure of themselves because they hadn't done theater before, not Broadway theater, and they knew that was different from what they do at the, 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 the theme parks. They were smart enough to know that. Right. Uh, so they were a little bit unsure, and they thought, well, if, if we spend a few more million, you know, maybe we'll get it right. They didn't, they didn't really know how else to do it. They learned over time, and, but they were, uh, it was a wonderful uh, experience, uh, you know, to go into this that gorgeous theater, the Palace Theater uh, on Broadway, and see you know, the stage filled with you know, the most expensive sets. I, I, you know, I've been going to theater for uh, decades. This, you know, the most expensive sets I'd ever seen, and costumes, and in my work on the stage. So it was very, it was very wonderful and satisfying to be able to experience that. After that, I never did uh, film or television again. I just stayed in theater. I never stopped working in theater. Uh, uh, yeah, I see a ton. Not, at least not, not for 25 years. Yeah, I see a ton of theater stuff, theater and commercials on your, on your filmography. I do have a mm -hmm. question about um, uh, how did the Back to the Future ride happen you you did um uh, uh model you were a lead model maker for that did they just come to you based on your reputation or I, it was an east coast uh project doug trumbull was in massachusetts at that time in the berkshire mountains he had a, a, a beautiful facility um former fabric mill i believe it was gargantuan just huge Mega space is perfect for this. It was, it was like doing it, the Back to the Future ride was the equivalent of like the special effects for a Star Wars film. 
it was like a very expensive four-minute film. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, this was some years ago. I think the figure I remember hearing was 14 or $15 million was the budget for the three or four minute, whatever the length of the ride is, that was yeah. what they were making. 1991. They were making a film. 1991. So, yeah, okay. this was the first big foray into that stuff, I guess. Yeah, they weren't doing any CGI. That was when CGI was, uh, I think, existed but was quite new. Mm -hmm. And this was all practical. This was all live in front of the camera stuff, miniatures. It was a series of very large miniature sets. And uh, they were using motion control, which is uh, means the computers are controlling the movement of the cameras through the through the set and doing Blade Runner like effects where they had uh, computers uh, uh, controlling the density of the mist that they put in the environment as they shoot the flying craft, the DeLoreans flying through uh, space. I I um, I rode that ride. I did too. And uh, a good it, ride. It, yeah, it, it was, was great. a great ride. Yeah, absolutely. I remember at the time the buzz around the park was like, "This is the future of rides." Yeah, and uh, yeah, in yeah, some yeah. ways it kind of came to pass. And you then, worked with, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, I think Ron Cole worked on that. He did. I hired him. Yeah, yeah. Ron's a great guy. He's mad. He at is. Me, but he's a great guy. <laughs> he's a great guy, and he can do anything. He can do anything. They because they. Uh, they asked me, they said, how, why do you only need six people to build this set? I said, if, if, I, had the, if I had the wrong people, I'd need 20. But if I can get uh, people like Ron Cole, on, uh, if I get the right people, I, will, I can do it with six people, and we'll do it better and quicker and cheaper, mm -hmm. which was exactly right. Uh, yeah, that, that brings up something I wanted to mention. You know, when, when I was... Um, uh, looking at the articles in Cinemagic and stuff, where we started. Um, yes. There was, you had this cadre of people. Um, so Vincent Guastini. Yeah. Um, Ken Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I'm trying, I'm struggling to remember. I want to say, was there Kenneth Johnson? No. Uh, Bill, Bill Basso. Uh, Dan Platt. Uh, they all live near me. And, 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 <laughs> Mark Alfrey, they all live near me. Yeah. Mark, I, Mark lived upstairs. <laughs> and these were all, and, and these all became um, these names, you know, and these guys that I'm like, man. And so, you know, decades later, I'm like, I'm on Facebook and I'm like, Vincent Guastini, I remember that name, you know, and, and, mm. and so. Uh, Inadvertently, you have uh, <laughs> fostered friendships for me with people. <laughs> All right. Uh, some Good people. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Well, it was uh, the East Coast was unusual in the 80s. I mean, there weren't that many people who did this kind of work. And I don't, I can't, I can't explain why so many of them lived near me. So maybe I had some influence or uh, help them in some way to do this professionally? I'm not sure. They all went to the West Coast, or, or most. Uh, I mean, Dan, didn't, Dan Platt lived in Philadelphia, but uh, he, 
he would come and sometimes he would spend the night in the house just because it was too far a drive. But uh, there wasn't, there wasn't, there were a very limited number of opportunities on the East Coast. So somehow these guys found me. Mm-hmm. Um, some near me. Uh, a few of them lived literally, you know, 15 minutes away or less. And uh, some, uh, like Dan Platt, came from a, a greater distance. Um, but, well, I know. Um, I know. Where else would they go? There wasn't. There weren't many people in the '80s. This is like before the, um, pra- the great practical effects, makeup effects explosion in the '80s that uh, uh, came in the wake of Dick Smith's work. Um, when suddenly they had to invent a new name for what makeup artists were now doing. Sure. Uh, sure. Would Dick Smith doing the the the, uh, the Exorcist and Altered States? I mean, there was there was no need to. Say, get me a, except except to say, get me a makeup artist. But when you have somebody who's vomiting pea soup, or whose head is spinning around, or the effects in altered states, there there's no precedent for it. There was this, makeup effects didn't cover that. So suddenly there was a whole new field. It was special makeup effects and very much in demand. So they, there was like an explosion, principally in California. Um, uh, but on the East Coast, you know, I was here, but there weren't a lot of people doing this kind of work. So I think the talented up-and-comers just found me because uh, I was a little well, older than them, and I'd been in Cinemagic, and they could find me. And Dick Smith, despite working on all these big Hollywood movies, always lived in New York, right? I mean, he never moved. <laughs> he did alter states in this time. He has a smaller house than I live in now. <laughs> he had this... He had this this basement that was smaller than the basement I grew up in. I mean, in the house that I grew up in. He, uh, well, I mean, it was an average size basement. I think it seemed tiny because it was so crammed with stuff. But uh, you, you go there and it's like it's nothing special. There aren't the huge spaces you associate with a California uh, type of shop. These, you know, vaulted ceilings and, you know, gargantuan. You could parade elephants through them and uh, have elbow room still. Uh, but he, he, he was a small, he was, it's a series of small rooms and he, he did altered states and Starman and Exorcist there. That's crazy. And I, I, it's it's hard to understand how he did it, uh, except I know his attic was like crammed with molds, and his garage was crammed floor to ceiling with molds. Yeah, and sometimes crazy. even uh, borrowed his neighbor's garage for storage. Could you imagine just going through that stuff? That's oh, that's... Hey, so we uh... did go through it. We did go through it when he moved to Florida. Huh. He invited, uh, you know, seemed everybody he knew on the East Coast. They, there were several days where he said, "Can you come over and help me move the stuff down out of the attic?" And uh, and or I'm giving this stuff away. What do you want? Uh, or help me man, move it to the street so they can pick man, it up. Or man. I know that's uh, amazing. That's amazing. Hey, I'm I'm curious what you're working on now. Um, I'm going to be 70 soon, so I keep thinking, what am I going to do? Because I don't have the energy I had when I was 30. I don't have the mental clarity. It's not, I'm not as fast. I, you know, I can't remember names. I just see where this is going. <laughs> I have to. I need to find a kind of work that I find satisfying. That um, you know, maybe I can make a little money doing. That would be. That's always nice. Uh, but that's creatively fulfilling. But I can do sitting at a computer would be that would be nice. Mm. If I don't have to lift uh, f- uh, forty pound bags of plaster all day long and clay oh. and 
And make, make up effects, everything weighs 40 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can make the return to go back to stop motion. Well, I, I love I, that idea. I remember at one time, not, not too many years ago, you had kind of picked up on um, this dinosaur musical. Yeah. Is that still a thing? or? Uh, I, it's, it's, it's still a thing, but it's not my backup plan it's not it's no longer what i'm going to do when i grow up right. it's my hobby it's my hobby cuz i remember it's my I, hobby i remember uh, gosh i remember an article with ken brilliant um oh that's true we were working on that's true yeah ken and i were working on a version of this project many decades ago yeah that's true. and i was so excited i was like i remember god Tom, this guy's responsible for me learning so much stuff, I, and, and these exotic terms like dragon skin. <laughs> and I'm just like, whoa, what? Because I grew up in in rural southern Illinois, where like even saying that you want to work on on anything related to, that was film related um, was like saying you want to live on Mars, you know, and mm -hmm. and I remember these terms like fr uh, friendly plastic and dragon skin and sculpty, and I'm just like, I don't know what the hell he's talking about, <laughs> but I've got to, I've got to learn this stuff. I, I didn't answer your question. What I'm doing now is illustration. I'm learning how to draw. That's excellent. I I have three book projects, none of which are sold, but um, hopefully that has something to do with the fact that I haven't shown them to anyone yet, so we'll, well see and, where that goes, but I, I'm enjoying it. And they are related to uh, a forest story, right? Which is Well, they have the Grog character. I'm calling it Redmond because there are copyright issues because it's a name in common use. The name Grog is in very common use, oh. and it's probably better to change it, but it's that character and a um, series of books about this character and his misadventures. Uh, Young children, picture book, uh, 32 pages, 500 words, and so on, the formula. But uh, I'm really liking it. I think if I keep at it long enough, I'll get, I'll get good at it. So um, that's, that's where I am. That's awesome. Real briefly, I wanted to ask, I remember running across a YouTube clip of you kind of giving a tour of your studio at some point. And... Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I distinctly I remember the um your version of the um I don't remember his name but the the demon on bald mountain from yes, yes. Fantasia. Uh, what when would that have been do you know? Uh 80 probably early 80s. Um was it a full figure or a head? It was a full figure. Did, it was a full both. figure but it was small. Oh, all right. Oh, all right. That yeah, that was just a sculpture project. Um, I didn't. Uh, that wasn't. I was just practicing sculpting. Uh, sure. Because I hadn't done uh, human f figures, and I thought it maybe was, I should try. It was really interesting because it was the first time that I had seen you, not just as static photographs on a page of a magazine, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, it was it was fun. It was fun watching you kind of just walk through and just kind of have fun. With uh, all this stuff, I that think that's part on. of the special materials on the Synapse DVD of the Deadly Spawn. That video oh, awesome. you're referring nice. to. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. 
Well, I thank you, sir, for coming by. We're going to let you go, and uh, we're going to look for that bo- those books. I know that. Uh, All right. I'm I'm excited about them. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see that. Are they are they children's books or are they? Yes, they're yes. for children, six okay. to eight years old. That's a great market. I've I've seen so, a few of the um, the Photoshop paintings, and I'm really excited. Thank you. Appreciate that. I'm, I'm making some progress in that area, I feel. We had a great conversation. Thank you so much for your interest, and you have a great show. Mr. Dawes. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Well, that was fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love that guy. This guy's a hero of mine, right? in the literal sense of the word. Right, right. Absolutely. And and what a footprint. You know, he, he seems so so concerned about, about like that, the legacy. And it's like, dude, your legacy's kinda set. Yeah. You know, there's some great stuff it's there. Solid. Uh moving on to some newsy stuff. Um couple of things, then we'll get out of here. Um uh some people died, of course. Darlene Cates, the mother from Who's Eating Gilbert Grape. Oh. I would have thought that not to be a dick, but I would have thought she would have died a long time ago. Yeah, I would have shoved. Um, uh, there was a lot of people online talking about what a, just what a nice person she was, and and you know, I don't know if I know her from anything else. No, she no. was wasn't an actress as I as far as I know, she wasn't an actress, and she did that film, mm-hmm. and then was like, uh, I, you know, I don't want to. Yeah, that's a lot that. of work. Yeah. Um, a name that our listeners won't know, but is a kind of a big deal to you and I, is Richard Bastillo. Yeah, Richard Bastillo, man. So at one time there was I, the IMBA Academy, which is the um, it was it was essentially uh, Dan Inosanto and Richard Bastillo. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Bastillo is a is a martial artist, Filipino yeah. martial artist, Filipino and, martial artist. Yeah, did a lot of training with Bruce Lee, uh, and. Um, at, at some point, and I, I never knew the story. I don't know why this happened, but at some point, him and and Guto and Asanto parted ways, at least as far as uh, teaching goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, was doing his own thing um, in the JKD Kali world. And uh, Richard's big thing was boxing. Mm. He, like he was, he was uh, really. He was really big on the boxing aspect of uh, Jeet Kune Do. We, you know, and Bruce said, you know, um, boxing has probably the most truth to it than, mm-hmm. than a lot of other things do. And uh, so when I thought of Richard Bistio, I never met Richard Bistio, um, but uh, when I thought of him, I, I always thought of that section in the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, which which speaks specifically to boxing. Mm-hmm. So he, yeah, he just passed away this week. Yeah, there was some confusion online about whether or not he really did, but then I saw that Diana Lee Inasano and uh, Ron Balicki mm-hmm. were saying, yeah, yeah, it's true. And then it started to come out, more and more people were saying yeah. that. Um, and then uh, a name that may not be familiar to you, Alessandro Alessandroni. He was the guy who, he was a musician, an Italian musician, he was the guy who did all of the whistling in Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Oh, damn. And he's he's huge in Italian film music, but mm-hmm. no one's ever heard of him. Right. Um, he sits pretty comfortably on the couch with people like Stelvio Cipriani, Ennio Morricone, you know, those kind of guys. Right, right. Um, but he was most known for whistling. For whistling. Yeah, yeah. And it's... And you I think... Do- 
I'd be willing to bet he was the whistler in the um, uh, the Trinity films. Yeah, films. probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. There's lots of footage on YouTube of him sitting there with a the solo guitar doing, you know, like, you know, Blondie's theme or, or whatever else. And it's just <laughs> yeah. fucking amazing. And then um, just today, Radley Metzger died. We mentioned Radley back in the porn episode with when Lisa we Van Deaver. To, yeah. He did things like opening of uh, Misty Beethoven, the private afternoons of uh, Pamela Mann, uh-huh. and, and he was a really sort of he was again he's sitting on the couch next to people like Gerard Damiano and, right. and great sort of adult uh, uh, cinema directors, and so yeah, it was a drag. It was one of those things, and weird because yeah. we were just talking about yeah, him. right. And why you haven't talked about Radley Metzger in years? And we bring him up, <laughs> and suddenly he dies. Um, so we need to stop doing that. We need to stop mentioning people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A uh, couple of things uh, news-wise. Um, they We talked about this Matrix reboot and what a terrible idea it is. And right. I, I was so in the tank against it. Uh, and then I guess I was, I was watching Kevin Smith's Batman on Batman. And Mark Bernardin, his co-host, said that he had heard that the rumor that he was hearing about it, it wasn't a remake or a redo, it was a Rogue One-esque slot filler in canon mm-hmm. that would be what he said was Michael B. Jordan, the guy who was in Creed, as right. a young Morpheus. Suddenly, I'm in. I don't need sure. to know anything more than that. I'm in. Yeah. And um, uh, there was also some talk about other stories taking place, like Neo happens. Well, but well, there's, a, there's a moment where the architect says, this is like the 156th iteration of this story. Right. So you can just sort of spin off from there. Right. Well, I mean, it would be interesting, you know, at what point during Morpheus's life do the machines take over? Yeah. Are we? And when does he story? get woke? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Are we? Are we doing a story before the machines? One? Maybe. Maybe. You know, maybe not. Like, maybe. Like, I don't. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. But uh, suddenly, I'm kind of interested. Sure. Now, probably they'll. We won't do any of that. <laughs> Yeah, probably <laughs> it'll, it'll be, be yeah, it'll yeah. be somebody else going whoa. Yeah, um, <laughs> Warner Brothers is courting Jordan Peele based on the um, success of Get Out mm-hmm. to direct the live action Akira. Um, weird. Yeah, kind of like, kind of like when they first talked about a uh, live action Akira, where where they were talking about Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. as Kaneda. And there was the other guy, the guy that did um, House of Wax and a couple of other things. He was going to do one. Yeah. I forget his I, name. You know, Akira is one of those properties that I, I, I'm i not... So a lot of people here recently have been upset about the live-action Ghost in the Shell. Yes. I'm not upset about that. I'm it, not either. It doesn't bother me at all. But Akira, I kind of feel like... Well, let's be honest. Two thirds of the way through Akira, the narrative hits ice and yeah, spins out. Yeah, I agree. It's, but what's there is cool, and it gives me hope—the visuals of Ghost in the Shell. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, it's it's just not—they just didn't get it. Yeah, and um, that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When when you're all of the reviews I'm hearing of Ghost in the Shell say. Um, uh, all brains, no heart, or no, no, all heart, no brains, no, mm-hmm. something like that. And all brains, no soul. <laughs> anyway, but when you look at the film and it's about soul, it needs that at yeah. the very least. And it cures kind it of. It makes the same you way. worry that it's 
all style over substance. Yeah, and that yeah. said, as that, sure, I'll get a couple of I drinks guess, in me and watch a movie that doesn't make sense. Yeah, if it looks cool. absolutely. But I, I just, you know, I don't even, I don't even like bringing it up anymore because it's such a cliche at this point. Is like. Why? Why? You know, right. like, make a fucking news story. Make a news story inside that same universe. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, it's just one Neo of Tokyo's th- still there. You yeah, know. there's just one of those things you're never going to get it right. Yeah. It's like being... You, you just... You're never going to make the fans happy. You're never going to bring the new people in because no. they don't have 20 years, 30 years or so of uh, uh, it being in their zeitgeist. Right. So, yeah, you're just dooming yourself. Like, why would you fuck with that? Yeah. Anyway, um, this is kind of exciting. Uh, the Aquaman screenmaker, screenmaker, <laughs> screenwriter, <laughs> supposedly the next thing he's working on is the, a live-action, big-budget creature of the Black Lagoon. You know, there's been so many times the creature from the Black Lagoon in the last, I'd say, I don't know, twenty, Carpenter twenty it. years, or thirty couple, years, even a couple other people. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have to say this: creature from the Black Lagoon is one of my favorite creature designs of mm-hmm. all time. As a film, there isn't much there. Yeah, there's not. Yeah. So that's good and bad. Um, if you're gonna remake it, it get that kind of gives you carte blanche to do whatever the hell you want right? right because there is not a lot there in the original movie the reason why the original movie is so great is because of that creature design yeah absolutely and, yeah because you see him swimming and he looks cool and and the only thing they can do is sort of quote unquote upgrade the design yeah which is going to ruin it it's going to ruin the design yeah exactly yeah. every time i've seen a Gilman redone it's always not been as well the closest i think was uh probably steve wang's um uh, Gilman in um, Monster, Monster Squad. Squad. Yeah. And I'm going to throw in um, the monster in uh, Sandy Clora's Shallow Water. Shallow Water. That's yeah. a cool looking it's monster. It's a very cool looking it's monster. It's like the Gilman with, made, mated with a snapping turtle. Yeah. And it's badass. <laughs> it's badass. It's true. It is badass. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested until I see the first trailer. But yeah. we're going to get to something in the, uh, that's would probably may prove me wrong on all that mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. stepping down from Iron Man after Infinity War. Who cares? Nah, I, like, don't, care. I don't care. G.I. Joe being rebooted for a millennial audience. Stop it! <laughs> That's what they're saying. <laughs> but again, it goes back to them, Hasbro, wanting their shared universe. Yeah. And from a financial standpoint, that makes perfect sense. Sure. Can't buy any of this. No. Stallone stepping away from the Expendables, which is weird because it's his franchise. Like, yeah. he's like, I don't want any more part of this. Maybe he doesn't want any more part of acting. I mean, how old is that guy now? Well, he's doing Escape the Escape Plan 2, and I hear, and he's doing a couple of other things. And he's not being in exactly selective. And uh, he looks great. He's in his 70s, but I wouldn't fight him. Yeah. That's for, fuck, that's for well, sure. Well, you know, I feel like if I was, like, when he did Cop Town, mm-hmm. I had real uh, hope. Yeah, that they, oh, he was this, great in, this guy's in Cop Land. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Cop I'm sorry. Yeah, Cop yeah. Land. Yeah, Cop Town. Yeah, Cop Town. Different. Yeah, different. Yeah. Um, I had a real uh, hope that he was going to kind of go into like mm-hmm. more acting, you know, and 
And the opposite has been the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe that's the goal now. Maybe he's looking at things like uh, Schwarzenegger and Maggie and this new airplane yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. Maybe he's like, I could do drama. Sure. Okay. Maybe. Uh, I didn't know about this, but the God, uh, Godzilla Monster Planet animated. It looks... It's not narratively... Is this the Netflix thing? I don't know. It's an animated thing. They, But it looks kind of like Destroy All Monsters. They're like pulling out all these monsters yeah, yeah, and yeah. guide you out of the mothballs and yeah. throwing them up there. Yeah, it looks cool. I'm excited. Yeah. Until they introduce the young plucky kid who's a... <laughs> yeah. Um, Rain Wilson from The Office right. was cast in the new Star Trek series as Harry Mudd. Makes sense. Yeah, I could char- see that. I could see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good character. Yeah. You know, they they brought him back twice in the original series, so why why are we not bringing him back now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, cool. Right. This is the one that got me. That this doesn't. Let me see how you piece this out. Okay. Channing Tatum mm-hmm. doing a voice in an R-rated animated film. His character, George Washington. <laughs> I know. I just don't. I none of that makes sense. Like the I'm uh huh uh huh uh huh. The George Washington. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Okay. I guess I got to know more about the project. Oh, well, you don't know, I need to know anything more <laughs> about that project. Um, they're talking about John Favreau's Lion King, part of Disney's. We're going to make live action film, right? Horror, I, which I imagine is going to be a lot like uh, Jungle Book. Yeah. 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 Um, and now they're saying his next film is Lion King, and they're pushing really hard for Beyonce as Nala. Now, it brings up a thing of... Well, okay, so when you say that, I'm I'm thinking her voice. Her voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure a lot of, you know, Babe-esque onset lions that mouths right. funny. Well, the... I get it because it's a it's a person who brings with them sure um, it's all right yeah yeah absolutely. It's yeah but I just wonder is she is it because she's right or is it just because you know I know people who are voice actors in cartoons and mm-hmm. they they are constantly talking about how they're they're losing work because they'll do these big budget animated films and they won't get and, and the, instead of getting the voice actor they get an actor actor yeah 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 yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know why we need a version of The Lion King, I mean, I, at this point. Um, again, but again, I think it sounds like an item on a list. Yeah. You know, these are our films, and one by one we're going to take them off. Um, these are a couple of comic book things, and you're not going to be interested, as you can tell from your young... Uh, <laughs> Josh Whedon is doing a Batgirl flick. Why? I don't know. Why? And then... Um, talking with both Marvel and DC about doing a comic book movie is Aaron Sorkin, which makes no sense. TV guy, why do yeah drama kind of dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, none of that makes sense. No. So, yeah, a lot of head scratching this week with news. Um, as far as trailers go, I want to just run through a couple of them. Um, there was there wasn't a lot. Uh, War of the Planet of the Apes. I don't know if we talked about it last week. Did we talk about it last week? Uh, I we might have directed by Matt Reeves, who did Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I, he did I, Let Me In and Cloverfield. Yeah, I will say this: that um, this the the reboot of the Planet of the Apes series awesome. as awesome as, as 
as much as I'm against that type of stuff, they've been great. The CG I, stuff, I've, yeah. I've, I've loved them. Andy Serkis has done a great job in acting. This, and this looks really good. Uh, I do question Woody Harrelson's casting, and I do a qu question the illusions that they're making to Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. But okay, you know, the action looks cool. It looks full of humanity. And once again, we're, as we were talking with John, um, the humans are the bad guys. Oh. <clears throat> um, trailer for a movie called Phoenix Forgotten. I describe it to people as Blair Witch meets Area 51. I think it looks awful. Do you? It looks very Blair Witchy, though. It does look very, very Blair Witchy. It, 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 I, I, I've said this before. As soon as you start that type of filmmaking, for me... And I know a lot of people really enjoy it, but it just means to me, like, you don't know how to make a fucking movie. Yeah, you're hiding a lot. Yeah. You be in, the, in that chaotic motion of the camera, you're you're cheating a little bit, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, I saw it, and I thought it, it was worth bringing up just because it was so clear what it, they were trying to do. Um, something called Paris Can Wait, Eleanor Coppola, who directed Hearts of Darkness. It's a drama she's doing. Mm -hmm. It's what I call menopausal cinema. Um, it's, it's like uh, the uh, a walk in the clouds, and you know, it's like right. the audience is very firm what this is, and you know, a, a woman with a with a dicky husband finds herself. It's, it's that same sort of Stella got her groove back mm -hmm. kind of motion. That um, sure, uh, there's an audience for it. There's an audience, absolutely. Uh, a couple of things. Legend of the Sword, this new King Arthur thing that um, Charlie Hunnam from um, Sons of Anarchy is doing. Mm -hmm. uh, directed by Guy Ritchie. It doesn't look like anything new. And by the time in this trailer you get to Led Zeppelin doing Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, yeah, none of it makes sense. It just looks like weird and bombast and Jude Law scowling his way. I think it comes down to... You know, somebody like Guy Ritchie saying, I want to make a... I've always wanted to make a... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's British, so it makes sense. Right. But it just looks... It looks like everything you loved about A Knight's Tale. You yeah, know. exactly. Um, and then uh, they released a trailer for It. Yeah. And it looks pretty good. It looks great. Um, I will say this... Um, one of my friends showed me um, the trailer that they show is essentially the same opening sequence for the TV it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Almost, well, almost shot for shot. Well, it sounds like it's um, it's uh, it's aware of its roots, mm -hmm. and they're going to try to sort of do something else with it. Um, the the Pennywise looks genuinely creepy, where. Uh, I guess the move that they're doing is the first film is the first half of the book where it takes place in the past. Right. And then the sequel will be as these characters are adult. It has the, the kid from Stranger Things in it. Yeah. A couple other things. Um, no, it looks great. I mean, I, I'm i excited about it, but I, I was always perfectly happy with the first, with the TV movie. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people when we don't get, like it. When we get to the spider, you lose me. But that's... The story. It I mean, is the like, story. Yeah, and I, you lost me in the book in the same point. Mm -hmm. uh, you haven't. I know you haven't had a chance to see this because they just released it today. A uh, full trailer for the Mummy, talking about the 
the backstory on the mummy itself. And I tell you what, this looks really good. Really? It looks like a complete roller coaster ride. Because that first trailer, I was totally unenthused by. Mm -hmm. But then again, I come with the trappings of, you know, the prejudice of really liking the Boris Karloff mummy. Well, it sounds kind of like that, where she is uh, set to be queen, and she ends up finding a dark path, and she's the one that's bound and buried alive. Um, And now she's back to try... And the beauty of it is, is that I guess it sort of hinges on the hubris of Tom Cruise's character to uh, where it forms a link between the two mm. and she wants something from him or whatever. Right. But what I saw was lots of scenes of Tom Cruise flying through the air and, um, <laughs> you know, like being thrown around and right. really like, holy shit, you know, mm-hmm. allowing that stuff to happen. Um, so I'm kind of on board with that. And the, But the film I'm most excited about is not the one that people think that I would be, and that's this little movie called The Ghost Story. I was going to say Ghost Casey, Story. Casey Affleck. It, it looks great. It looks so good. And yeah. it's so in Tom's wheelhouse, the mm-hmm. whole love from beyond the grave <laughs> and all that stuff. Right. And I just love the idea that rather than spending all this budget on effects and you know ethereal ghostbustery, ghosty stuff, they literally have a guy standing in like a Charlie Brown sheet with little eyes. <laughs> and it just kind of works. In a yeah. weird way, it works. And it just... It, well, I, the cinematography on it looks great. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just looks like... It It looks like a really good... As we've talked about before, ghost stories require a certain... Yeah. A certain brush. Yeah. It's like that pretty thing that lives, lives in the house. Yeah, yeah, How, yeah. kind of has it. And and this movie looks like it has it. Yeah. Directed by uh, David Lowry, who did the Pete's Dragon remake. So I wonder if this is... Do Pete's Dragon, and we'll let you do something... Maybe. ...on your own. So that's kind of exciting. Uh, let's see. Have you Did you see anything this week of Worth? Good God, no. I've been working... You've been working a lot. I've been working a lot. I'm going, I came here from work and I'm going straight from here right back to work. And I'll probably be at work until three or four o'clock this morning wow. or tomorrow morning. Uh, well, I, on the other hand, watch a bunch of stuff. Kind of a shitty week in, in my in my choices. <laughs> um, Planet 51 animated thing with the, I think the rock was in it. Um, it was, I don't think I've even heard of it. It's fine enough. It's a modern man goes lands on a planet to claim it for earth and it's already occupied by uh like aliens but their aesthetic is kind of like 1950s very leave it to beaver okay kind of thing it's fun uh harry potter and the deathly hallows man could we have trimmed that shit to about 90 minutes um as i said before it's a it's a six-hour movie about camping Essentially, kind of. Although I, I would say that out of out of all those movies, it's the one that kind of gets me the most. Okay. Yeah. It. You know. It was fun and enough. Serious. I mean, like all the all the kid stuff's gone. Oh yeah, point. people are it, dying, yeah. and Longbottom is a bad get rises up, and yeah, yeah good good man. Uh, Frankenstein's Army. Oof. <laughs> uh, I won't even go there. So man, th- wait, I want to I want to talk about that for just a brief second, and those guys did this uh, crowdfunding campaign for a project called uh, gosh it's been years now uh, it was called um, worst case scenario okay in which um, Nazis were coming back they were coming back right and they were 
But it wasn't like, you know, the skinhead group down the street, right. you know, is coming back. No. The Nazis from World War Two are zombies now, and they're coming back. And, <sighs> I just... And they, just, were the, they, 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 they made these beautiful promo uh, mm-hmm. things. Yeah, I just don't know. I think, is there a special lately on Nazi uniforms at their costume rental house? It just I don't seems know. like they're everywhere. Yeah. And, and not needfully so. Right. I mean, you know. Well, it just really bummed me out that this, this, uh, the stuff that they had done early on that shows so much promise, mm-hmm. um, turned into that. Yeah. Yeah. It's too bad. Uh, let's see. Documentary called Wild Wonderful Whites of West Virginia. It's a great, that's a good documentary. Good documentary. Human excrement. On, on screen. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's, it's always kind of puzzled me as to why the White family has gotten kind of, um, I don't know, the, the, that fame or... Yeah. It's weird. Although, you know, like Jessica, um, like I get this whole mountain dancing thing, mm-hmm. you know, they, but, but just in general, those are the people that I, you know... Hmm. I knew way too many people like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I knew a lot of those people, and uh, and I there's a reason why I don't live where I grew up. You know, <laughs> absolutely. And then uh, the picks of the week though was a documentary on black exploitation called Badass. That that's Ma- a great yeah Martin Van Peebles did. That yeah, was very fun. And I found um, an old Sergio Martino movie called Suspicious Death of a Minor. That mm. was it's sort of a giallo film that I that I kind of dug. Uh, so as far as plugs and stuff, you're just working on your shit. Oh my God. Stuff. Yeah. We're, we're, we're in the, uh, we're at that stage where it's like, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's a train <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and we're, yeah. Uh, literally everybody at the shop is like working like all the time right on. In, in an effort to get this thing done. Well, we're, right we're almost there. Um, a lot of painting going on. Right, you saw, I saw some photos of it. It looks great. Yeah, it's, 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 I'm having a good time. Awesome. Yeah. Um, we got our panel assignments for Crypticon. Yeah! Crypticon will be at the SeaTac Doubletree in Washington State near Seattle, May 5th through 7th. I was only going to go on the 6th and 7th, but then I got booked on the 5th, so I guess I'm going down for all three days. I'm there for all three days. Um, yeah. yeah I got you, you're stuff. on way more... Pa- well... But you're crazy. You want to go there and be on panels the whole time, and yeah. I want to go there and just hang out and. Yeah, I don't. I, it's, I'm like the the most unfun guy at the con. <laughs> I don't want to go to. I don't drink and I don't do any of that other stuff and no crowds and really. Um, Langley's gonna do five panels and drink the rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. I'm doing like ten or fifteen, but uh, some good stuff in there. We got. Um, uh, I'm doing an interview with David Emge, Galen Ross, and Scott Reiniger. We're doing a lot of stuff on Romero is going to be heavily represented there. Yeah. Um, we're doing a knife fight demo that's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be I know it's going to be painful. <laughs> I've already resigned myself that it's going to be painful. I'm doing a reading of the opening of Clown Town and a couple of other things. So it's going to be a good time. It's gonna, it, it is. It's going to be. I'm, I'm really excited about this, uh, this con in particular. Mm-hmm. It's over the years that those kind of things have been come become hard for me just because 
Uh, Tom gotta, in public is a yeah. You got to get up, and get out of that. Uh, although, although you know what, you I saw you last year down there. Yeah, and you were having a good time. I do. I enjoy. I've, I've discovered that I am more comfortable talking at people than with them. Sure. So the panel situation and why I told the the organizers like you got to book me on as many panels because I can't have any downtime. Because if I do, I'll think of all the things that I should be doing at home. Right. But and it's going to be great. It's going to be great. I'm very uh, excited. Whereas about it. I'm more like. Get me on as few panels as possible <laughs> and let me hang out at the bar and just really get to know these people. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they've got some great guests. And so if you're in that area, I highly recommend going. Um, other than that... Uh, I, I want to say uh, how much I enjoyed the show today. I've, I've been friends with John on Facebook for a few years now. And he is like Dick Smith in that... I can I can hop online and I can ask this guy anything mm-hmm. at any time. Also, he's one of the people that you know we've talked about before about um, the difference between CGI and practical effects, and he is a prime example of seeing the artist in the work. When sure, we're talking about practical. Sure, I can look at a a, a John Dobbs sculpture uh, and know mm-hmm. that that's his because he has this distinct way of doing wrinkles that I'm still trying to learn <laughs> and it drives me nuts That's funny. I would love to have him back again sometime because we, oh, there sure. was a lot of stuff we didn't talk about sure sure there's just you know it's one of those things yeah you never there's never enough time no. um and then other than that uh things are going good Show's doing well. Everyone's happy. I'm getting, we're getting feedback, and that's always awesome. That's so, good. Yeah. Please, if you're listening, send us feedback. Yeah, yeah. Let us know what you. Let think. us know what you think we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. Yeah. Because um, we're always looking to change that. We got some good stuff planned, um, but we'll talk about that later. All right. Oh. Um, also on the book front, I'm starting. I just plotted No Flesh Shall Be Spared two last night. And Bam! Gave it to my wife, and she looked at it, and she had thumbs up. So that's good. So we're off there. I'm taking a break from Pearl, String of Pearls. I'll I'll do one more pass on it in the middle of the month, and then it'll be done by May, and then that'll be out, and then we'll we'll do whatever after that. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thanks again. So for the Bonus Material Podcast, I'm Tom Parnell, and I'm Langley West. Stay scared.